Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 157 of Dogcast Radio, which is the second of our Crufts specials. The Animal Health Trust were at Crufts and this year they had a crucial message for all dog owners about cancer. It's a word we fear, but the truth is that we as dog owners can help the fight against canine cancer. To find out more, I interviewed Dr. Mike Starkey, who is the head of molecular oncology at the Animal Health Trust. And this is an interview that every dog owner should hear. We work on um, cancer in dogs. Uh, we're engaged in research, uh, which, is, which will hopefully make a, make a genuine difference to uh, dogs belonging to many breeds which are affected by many cancers. Uh, most of our work um, has clinical applications, so we're, we're, we, you know, we're trying to help dogs with cancer, but also help vets who are treating dogs with cancer. And we work very closely um, so at, at, at the Trust with, with, um, with um, scientists and clinicians working side by side on a whole range of different projects um, uh, aimed at um, uh, different aspects of cancer in dogs. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, there are, I mean, I've got a Labrador and he's had cancer, which was life-threatening, but it was skin cancer and it was a mast cell tumour. Well, he's had four mast cell tumours. And, I mean, when you hear the word cancer as an owner, you just think my dog's going to die. It's a horrible, horrible thing to go through. It is, it is horrible, but actually um, cancer, um, if treated um, correctly and early enough, is a very treatable condition. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the message which the clinicians particularly want to get out there. Yeah. I mean, certainly with Buddy, the first time, you know, it was a big panic, and, and obviously every time it's been huge worry. But, you know, he's had four, he's had them removed, he's clear. You know, he's very healthy, he's 12 years old, and as you say, he, you know, he's perfectly normal and healthy now. So, I mean, you mentioned mast cell tumours. The majority of mast cell tumours are treated very readily uh, with, with, with surgery, uh, possibly with additional radiotherapy required, but to the majority, you can take the lump off, and that's the end of the story. Yes. Yeah. There are a small proportion which, unfortunately, um, are nasty and actually spread, and those dogs require um, um, chemotherapy, uh, and have, and sadly, have a much, a much worse prognosis. But yeah. say, fortunately, uh, those dogs are in the minority. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, the, 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 there are there are 200 different types of, of, of cancer. So we're really spoiled for choice as to what we can actually work on. Yeah. Uh, the Army has trusted a charity. So we have to, you know, um, use the money which we uh, obtain from um, dog owners and dog breeders very carefully. So we, 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 we try and target cancers which either are the most serious um, or affect uh, the largest number of dogs. Yes. Uh, so we, you know, use our resources the most effectively. I have to say, we, we, we're very proud that actually our work is very clinically applied. So we really are trying to make a difference yeah. uh, to dogs which have been treated in our clinic every day. Um, one of our major uh, pieces of work is attempting to um, find ways of actually predicting how cancers will behave. And that's very important because it actually gives the vet uh, a, more, a better idea of the best way to treat a dog with cancer if they have an insight into how that tumour is likely to behave. So we say those kind of projects uh, uh, really are targeting at cancers which affect large numbers of breeds. So, so if you like, in one project, the outcome of one project will actually benefit many, many, many different breeds. Yes. 
So we have, for example, we have, we have produced a mast tumours that we referred to previously. Uh, so I mentioned that most mast tumours are actually uh, benign and can be re uh, treated by surgery, but actually identifying this small subset, which are dangerous, is not straightforward. Mm. And quite difficult to actually predict. Uh, existing tests uh, are, are not 100% effective, so we're trying to find a, a, a more definitive way of actually determining whether a mast tumour born by a dog of any breed will actually spread yeah. and therefore whether that dog will require this, this adjuvant treatment following surgery. Yeah. So how do you do that? Because I mean for example my own experience of mast tumours is he's, uh, the vet aspirated put it with an eagle, took some cells off, sent those off to the lab um, that came back with either it was or it wasn't a mast cell tumour, you know, it could have been a fatty cyst. So is that the kind of thing you're looking at? So it's, it's actually uh, slightly more subtle than that. Yeah. So, so currently um, the most commonly used way to predict whether it's a nasty mast cell tumour or benign mast cell tumour is to take a, a surgical biopsy usually and this will be examined by a pathologist and the pathologist will actually grade it yeah, yeah. and there are different types of grading scheme but essentially they grade it as either um, benign or nasty with a kind of intermediate grading which is where they're not sure yes. and regrettably that intermediate grading is the largest category of diagnosed mast cell tumour and the problem is within, in, within the intermediate grading although most of the tumours are benign you've got some which are not benign mm. So you've got your, your nasty set of tumours yeah. and then your subset within the intermediate tumours which are all going to spread. Yes. It's that, that middle category, that intermediate category, which is not terribly helpful. Yeah. And because most tumours fall in that category, your, your vet has the dilemma. Is this mastoid tumour one of the benign tumours in this intermediate category or is it one of the nasty tumours mm. in this intermediate category? Yeah. What we want to do is to come up with something that's much more definitive mm. than that. Yeah. And that involves actually looking at what we call the genetic blueprints mm. of mastoid tumours. Yeah. Comparing the blueprints of tumours that we know have spread with those that haven't spread mm. and trying to find we call a signature yeah. that uniquely identifies the tumours that will spread. So that if a dog with a mastoid tumour comes to the clinic, we can actually take a biopsy and actually profile that signature that will uniquely identify this tumour as a tumour that will spread or a tumour that will not spread. Yeah. And the added benefit of this type of technology is that it's so sensitive that we don't need to take a surgical biopsy. We can stick a needle in, take a few cells, run the test on those cells. It will then predict unequivocally whether or not this tumour will spread or will not spread. Obviously that has the benefit that the dog doesn't require surgery. Yeah. Doesn't require anaesthetic, doesn't require surgery. We stick a needle in, take some cells and run the assay. Now at the moment this is still at the research stage. But this type of test has been developed for uh, two or three human cancers, so we know it actually works in, in practice. And what we hope is we can develop something similar, not just for mast cell tumours, but for other cancers that affect a large number of dogs. Because, I mean, for example, basing on my dog here, my dog's 12, yes. so when he had his most recent mast cell tumour, I mean, He's very lucky at 12, he's very active and fit and there's no heart problems or anything like that. But if you did have an older dog, presumably, if you could tell the, the grade of the cancer and how likely it was to spread, 
it might still be that you choose not to operate, but you'd know the situation that you were operating in. Yeah, exactly the point. You're, you're really helping the vet to make a, a much better informed decision as to what the most appropriate treatment for a dog is. So, for example, you know, if you have a dog that has a, a mast cell tumour, I don't know, in the middle of its face, if you, if, if you can actually determine that that tumour is likely to spread, spread, spread internally to uh, the liver or the spleen, it's questionable actually whether radical surgery in that case to remove that tumour is in the dog's best interest, yeah. given that she was likely to spread. Yeah. Conversely, if you know that that tumour is a benign tumour, well, the surgery may be warranted. Yes. So it's, a, it, it, it's empowering, it's empowering the, the clinician to make a, a more informed decision about how best to treat that tumour and obviously helping the dog's owner as well. Yes, oh absolutely, because it's an incredibly worrying time. It's immensely worrying, and um, as I say, you know, you mentioned previously that you know the word cancer, you know, strikes fear into anyone that's ever had a dog or known, you know, or, or no, or, or, or you know, remember the family that's had cancer. Uh, cancer is, you know, the main cause of, of death in dogs, but you know, I reiterate, it is a, an infinitely curable disease yeah. in many cases. Yeah. And you know, we think with the work that, that we're doing at the Animal Health Trust. Uh, you know, hopefully, ultimately, we'll make a you know a real a real difference to you know dogs treated not just at the trust but you know but, but in, in, in any oncology centre. Uh, so we're very proud of the work that, 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 that we do. Uh, we are a charity. We, we do you know rely on on help from dog owners and, and dog breeders to actually uh, support our work. Uh, we're also very reliant on the same people to actually provide samples for our research. So, uh, but say, you know, we are very fortunate in that we do uh, receive a high level of support both from um, uh, dog owners and breeders and also from, from the veterinary community in terms of helping us to collect samples. So, uh, you know, we are, we are making slow but I think steady strides in the right direction on a number of different areas. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the other thing that gives people hope is there's never been so many options, it seems to me, if you dog with any illness but with cancer, there's never been so many options. Like, you, your dog can get chemotherapy now and as I understand it they they usually react better to chemotherapy than people is that well uh, I should say I'm not a vet I'm a scientist so I, I, I'm not best qualified to answer that uh, what I will say is another other projects that we're working on uh, involves trying to predict response to chemotherapy yeah. so um, some dogs or some tumors respond well to chemotherapy and others do not and once again it's hard to determine before you begin which type this cancer is so, for example, we have a study on lymphoma, which is one of the most commonly diagnosed cancers. Some dogs respond very well to, or some tumours respond very well to chemotherapy, others do not. So what we are, are doing again is try and find a gen the genetic blueprint of a tumour that responds well to uh, the most common form of therapy for lymphoma is called CHOP. So we're trying to find a, 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 a signature uh, you know, of a tumour that will that respond well to CHOP and one that will not respond well to CHOP. Again, to, to kind of guide the clinician to decide, is this an appropriate treatment for this lymphoma? So, um, and again, you know, lymphoma is such a common tumour, particularly B-cell lymphoma, type of lymphoma, a very common tumour. That any any um, you know, any result that, that, that we get will ultimately benefit a lot of dogs affected by lymphoma. So it's it's not straightforward. I make it sound kind of simple, but it isn't. Regrettably, uh, you know, in human cancer research, 
what we see are kind of small incremental steps. Yeah. You know, ultimately, you know, we, we hope heading for some big breakthrough. Yeah. So it's slow but steady progress, hopefully in the right direction. Yeah. You see, I, I find the, the, this sort of information fascinating because, you know, it's all very well. We're seeing um, adverts for, for human cancer at the moment, so sort of this message of cancer, you better be frightened, we're coming for you. But when you actually, I'm a layperson, so I, you know, I'm not a science person, so I, I am fascinated with the science. I don't understand it all, but I like to know how those, um, how that attack is coming, how we're um, targeting cancer, and what treatments, and, and exactly like this, the kind of research that's going into how to treat it? Well, I mean, effectively, uh, the, the cancers that dogs develop are essentially identical to the cancers that people develop. I mean, th th there are subtle differences for certain yeah. cancers, but, but by and large, they're very similar. So uh, the, the, the treatments and the kind of research approaches used for cancer in dogs are essentially identical to those that have been kind of pioneered yeah. for cancer in people. So, you know, in, term, in terms of treatment, uh, the kind of radiotherapy and chemotherapy options, which, are, which together with surgery are the kind of mainstays of yeah. treatment, are essentially kind of scaled down doses yeah. that will be applied to human patients. And in the research field, which is my area of expertise, we are using approaches which have been developed over the years for research into human cancers. So we're kind of following in the footsteps. Uh, using techniques and strategies that have been shown to be very effective for human cancers and applying those to cancer in dogs. Yeah. Um, what is interesting is actually is it's much more difficult in some respects to do research on cancer in dogs. It's actually harder to collect samples from dogs with cancer than it is to collect samples from people with cancer. And this is because in the UK, probably rightly so, we have very high ethical standards. So obviously in, in, with people can actually consent to a sample being taken. With dogs, they can't consent. We have to get you know, the, the consent of their owner or their custodian to actually take that sample. And say so we have very high ethical standards, which means uh, you know, it's more difficult to obtain samples. And samples really are the kind of lifeblood of the research. Without those samples, we can't do anything. And, you know, regrettably, we actually need large numbers of samples to try and really make a breakthrough. Yeah. Because tumours are very variable. So to actually come up with something which is representative of all tumours, you need to look at a large number of tumours, which, which is not straightforward. So we're continually trying to have to be clever in the research that we do to find new sources of tumour tissue for our work. Uh, most recently, we've been trying to um, make use of diagnostic tumour biopsies. So these are collected for pathology, we discussed previously, yeah, yeah. for this grading. And typically, once they've been used for pathology, they, kind of, they sit in a storeroom until they're thrown away. Yeah. And these tumours are very valuable because often we have, in addition to the, to the tumour itself, we have lots of clinical information about the tumour and the patient yeah. and how they responded to treatment. So actually, you know, effectively, those, those tumours are a goldmine. Mm -hmm. Until recently, we've not been able to utilise. Uh, improvements in technology recently mean that we can now actually use those tumours for the kind of genetic research that we're engaged with, and hopefully, 
ultimately it will actually provide a way of attaining those large sample numbers that we require to make progress in our work. So that, that's, a, that's a new area of work that the Kennel Club have, have actually um, uh, been helping us with. So, um, you know, we think it has great potential and it's an area which, again, has already been developed in, in human research quite recently. So, again, we're following in the footsteps of uh, Cancer Research UK, the kind of things that they do, but now applied to cancers in dogs. That's fascinating. I guess one of the, the key things that occurs to me is to get that message out to dog owners while their dog is healthy and they're sort of thinking straight yes. to consider that ahead of time yes. you're quite right that really is that really is the key obviously you know if, if you have a dog if your dog is diagnosed with cancer it's a kind of a, a huge a huge shock and you kind of shut down so what we try and do is obviously we work very closely with with breed clubs and breed societies but we also try to get vet practices on board so um, over a number of years, we've, we, we've tried to provide literature to vet practices that they actually display in their waiting rooms to kind of put the thought into people, into owners' minds before, heaven forbid, the day arrives that their dog has been diagnosed with cancer. So at least that they're, they're aware of us, yeah. they're aware of what we're doing. Actually, not just ourselves, but, you know, all the cancer researchers who are out there, just to raise the profile. Yeah. You know, if your dog does develop cancer, well, actually, it's an opportunity to support the research in that area. Yeah. But you're right. We need to get the we need to put the idea in people's minds before, heaven forbid, yeah. the day arrives. And that that's you know that that's, to be fair, it's quite difficult. Oh yeah. yeah, it's quite a difficult thing, particularly for a charity like ourselves. But I think that you know we, we do actually punch above our weight probably in this area. And uh, say, you know, we, we, we have these campaigns where we, you know, we approach vet practices all the time, continually, here we are, we're doing this, you know, please display this on your notice board, yeah. please inform owners of what we're doing. Also, uh, you know, we ask owners to approach their vet. Again, yeah. please put this on your notice board. Yeah. Please tell your clients of the research that's happening at the Animal Health Trust. Yeah. Just to raise awareness, continue to raise awareness all the time. Yeah. And it is, it is a you know, continual thing that, that we need to do. Absolutely. The work I've described so far is non-breed specific. Yes. So yeah. it's, it's, it's targeted at actually, uh, say, predicting how tumours that affect multiple breeds will behave. Yeah. The other aspect of our work that I've not referred to so far is focusing on trying to identify some of the genetic risk factors yeah. for particular cancers in particular breeds. So some breeds have a have a an inherited predisposition yeah. to developing a specific cancer. So again, we mentioned uh, mast cell tumors in Labradors. So Labradors have a potential have a potential to develop mast cell tumors, yeah. and part of that is due to an inherited genetic risk. Yeah. So one area of our work is trying to find those genetic risk factors for particular cancers in particular breeds. And the idea is that um, if we can identify um, those risk factors, one, we can identify, we can develop DNA tests to identify dogs that have a higher risk yeah. developing the cancer concerned. And secondly, by actually understanding what those risk factors do, we can hopefully develop targeted treatments for those cancers. Yeah. Now the important point is that these are risk factors. So if a, if a dog carries one or more of these risk factors, it doesn't mean they'll definitely develop cancer. Yeah. It means they have a higher risk. Yeah. The difficulty comes in actually quantifying that risk. Yeah. Other things have to happen to translate that predisposition into a tumour. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it can be quite difficult to interpret that kind of data. But nevertheless, from understanding of what these risk factors actually do, yeah. 
actually will hopefully ultimately lead to the development of better treatments, more targeted treatments which address particular defects that are kind of one kind of step in the pathway to developing the tumour concerns. So that's also a very big area of interest to us. And we're working very closely with, with a number of breed clubs targeting um, common and or serious cancers that affect the breeds concerned. Excellent. And I guess, again, I mean, I, I worked in, in the dog world. Um, I didn't know till my dog had mast cell tumours that Labradors had a tendency to it. So, again, it's in, informing people, isn't it? It, it is. Now, I think, you know, if, if you actually um, own a dog that belongs to one of these um, uh, susceptible breeds, you'll be aware of it. Yeah. But, but otherwise, you know, the general public, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be. And again, you know, to be fair, mass tumours is a good example. As I said before, most of these tumours are easily dealt with. Yeah. So it's, yeah. not, it's not really a big deal. What we'd like to know is whether there are genetic risk factors for the more serious mass cell tumours. Yeah. And clearly, you know, the impact of, of any results that we get will be much greater if we can find risk factors for those malignant tumours. Yes. Now, some of the tumours we're looking at, lymphoma, uh, indole mastis and boxers, are much more serious than most of the mast cell tumours. Yeah. Uh, we're also working on bone cancer, osteosarcoma, which affects large breeds. Yeah. Now, again, that's a very serious cancer for the breed concern. So the impact of those kind of studies is much kind of greater yes. if we can make yeah. a breakthrough. So it's a kind of a, you know, cancer is a, very, it's a multifaceted um, disease yeah. and we're kind of attacking different aspects of that disease and hopefully actually, you know, making small, small steps in these different areas that ultimately will contribute to the kind of bigger picture yeah. and to, a, you know, a large impact of the work that we're doing. So I guess the, the takeaway message is, if your dog has cancer, there is hope. Absolutely. No, if your dog has cancer, you know, that's not a death sentence. There is hope. You know, in the first instance, uh, your vet may be able to help you. If not, he or she will refer you to a specialist oncology centre, like the centre at the Animal Health Trust. It's infinitely curable. It's tackled in time. I hope if your dog has cancer, that's given you hope. And if your dog is healthy, I hope it's taken some of the fear away. And if nothing else, I really hope more people will give their permission for their dog's tissue samples to be used in research, because that's the only way treatments can move forward and a cure can be found. The Animal Health Trust is a marvellous organisation. It's a great support with a wealth of knowledge, and we have a link to it on the Dogcast Radio site. Now, the next interviewee went further than allowing her dog's tissue sample to be used in research. She donated her dog's whole body, not just once, but twice. Sharon Rose gives her time and turns up with her wonderful Great Danes to support numerous causes, and she's one of those rare people who genuinely make you feel humble and awed. I don't know where she finds her strength, but she's amazing. I met her at Crufts before with her gorgeous Danes, Bellamy and Barouche, although nobody had any idea how little time either of those dogs had to live. This year, Sharon was supporting the Animal Health Trust and was drawing lots of people to the stand with her Great Dane puppy, Brooke. Yes, he's nine months old and he's actually on his best behaviour today. But he is a typical naughty puppy. <laughs> he's, he's lovely actually because grown adult Great Danes are kind of quite laid back usually, but he's full of life and, and energy, isn't he? Yeah, he, he is, but he loves being made a fuss of. He does. Um, there's children meeting him, and he's so gentle with them, isn't he? Yeah. Great Danes do. They don't 
small dog, but you see them come up. The Great Dane are lie down. Um, but they are they're gentle giants. He's attracting so much attention today, isn't he? Yeah, but he does. And I he's a blues our third colour Great Dane. I've never had as much attention with any of the other colours as I've had with blues. A striking, you know, They are. They're fantastic, but yeah. they don't do very well in the show ring. But that doesn't matter. No, no, absolutely. He's got the talents. Yes, he has. So, but Brooks had some issues, hasn't he, with his his health? So, what happened to Brooke? Um, the first time he was attacked by a dog while he was in, a, we, he was before the jabs and he was too heavy to carry around to socialise and we were at a car boot sale and a dog went up and attacked him and um, he had puncture wounds to his uh, ear um, and needed treat veterinary treatment and the second thing was he ruptured his cruciate ligament at 17 months. 17 weeks? 17 weeks, sorry. Yes, he's, he can't be 17 months, he's only nine months, nine months old, yeah. Because at that point, you'd lost, was it Bellamy? Yeah, you'd lost, so you had your two great names, Bellamy and Baruch. And you'd lost Bellamy, you brought Brooke into the family. No, well, no you, we lost Baruch. And then Baruch was the younger one, that was in March last year. We got Be uh, Brooke at the end of July. And we then, when he was, when Bellamy was alive um, and, and wanted to go and protect the baby. And that's it. That and was the only time that he ever really interacted until the day before he died, which was September. So then you have this problem with Brooke, with a huge, you know, a giant breed, with a, a fast-growing skeleton and all the issues with that, and a, a, a ruptured cruciate ligament. So what did you have to do, Sharon? Because he's too young to have the operation, because it would have damaged his growth pace, he was on crate rest. And we were very lucky, and he's fine now. But we, we started him off anyway, socialising in a child's pram, and then we got a dog pram. And we just, so he, while he wasn't allowed to walk, he could go around um, and see things with his pram. There's, there's such a, an issue there. You've got to socialise a young dog, but you, you can't let him use that leg. It must have been a nightmare. It was terrible because, of course, it was he was allowed, he wanted. We, we didn't have any dogs. We only had cats besides him, so he could have been out the prey. But if he was playing with his toys, he'd throw them in the air and jump after them. So he had to go. And the worst thing is that when you hear a dog in a crate crying and you know that they're right, it's not like it, I don't want to be in the crate, I want you. It's because he, he wasn't ill. He, wasn't, he wanted to get out and be a puppy and he wasn't allowed to. And how is the leg now? Touch wood is fine. Um, he actually has been shown and he's, yeah, and he's treated as a normal dog. And today he's what well, he's here, so he's really getting he's putting all his socialisation skills to here today. He is fantastic. Yeah, I mean he is. He's, he's amazing, and there's dogs coming past and people coming past, and he's just taking it all in his stride. Yeah, he's, he he doesn't worry about anything. He's, we've never had one quite like that. Apparent, um, the day he was, um, we went to see him obviously um, when he was born, and. 
couple of times. But the day he was coming home, the breeder was coming near to us. So he drove the dog part of the way. But on the way back, on the way to us, he had this eight-week-old puppy and he got a flat tire. And he had to wait for the breakdown services. And he was sitting at the side of the motorway and he just sat on his lap. Right, with all the cars... As I said, we're very lucky. We do choose breeders for the temperament as well as health. But my goodness, it's just as well he's laid back. He's had an eventful life. Hasn't he? And he will be doing a lot more. Uh, Watch this space. Yeah. Well, we've got him. He'll be at Newmarket Races supporting the Animal Health Trust. Um, He will be at Spitalfield doing a fashion show. He will go to Pup Aid. Some television workers, and I know you've mentioned the Animal Health Trust. You are here on the stand all day. It's close to your heart, isn't it, the Animal Health Trust? Yes, because we didn't know anything about them, and we started collecting money. They asked for canine ambassadors for two years ago for crafts, and we started then. But last year, Baruch was taken ill on the 10th of March. And they thought it, all the tests showed it was um, pancreatitis, and he spent every day for a, a week at the vets, and he didn't get any better. Um, and it came to the Monday, and he was just going to be sent off, sent to um, have a scan. And I actually said, I don't know if it's worth it. He's dying. I could tell. And when it came to it, um, the vets said, look, we don't know what it is. We think he's now, now that it's an autoimmune problem. Let's see, they, there's a lot of hope. So we took him to the Animal Health Trust and saw a fantastic vet called Mayank, um, who didn't really examine him much because he knew the dog was in so much pain. And he kept him in, and they were doing CT scans and things like that. The next day, they did the CT scan, and they found nodules on his lungs. And he's had bad pneumonia. So that was a, when he was, I don't know, about a year, and, you know, a year old, something like that. And they thought it was just scar tissue, and they said, do you want to do um, more tests? And it would cost however much. And I said, well, we've got to because you can't wait. It's not like a lump that you can watch. And he said, I said, well, you could wait six months. I said, no. And then it came back that, yes, it was cancer. It was, I can't, it's a cystic sarcoma, I think. Um, it's something more, it's unusual anyway. And Rottweilers, and I think, yeah, um, uh, near Mountain Dogs have this particular cancer. Um, and, it, and so there was nothing they could do. So we went up there and had him put to sleep. We we don't have dog's ashes back. So we said we'll donate the bodies. And in fact, we donated his body to research. And their hearts went to Liverpool University because they're doing a study on DCM in Great Danes, which we'd already been examined. Um, but anyway, when we went, we, when we went in the room uh, with Baruch, they had a blanket on the floor ready for him, and I sat down, and the vet did what they had to do, and I put Baruch had his head on my lap, and I put his head down, but I put it on the floor, not a blank, not on the blanket, and the vet lifted it up. 
shit on the blanket, and that's a dead dog. So to, and, yeah, they were very caring. Because um, it wouldn't, have, it was me that put my dog's head on the thing, and that would always stick in my mind that they cared for him then, and they've been there for me ever since. If I wanted to, phone, if I had a query about anything, I could phone. And when we went back, when Bellamy was diagnosed at my own vet, and he would had osteosarcoma, which we didn't know, he was taken. He was taken ill on a Saturday. On the Sunday, no, on Sunday, the day before, he'd try and see what he'd done. He'd been playing with the puppy. It was the first time he played with the puppy. And we took him to the vet on the Sunday, and I knew he was limping. I knew it was, he didn't need cage rest, it was something. And they arranged to x-ray him the next day. Again, I told them when I brought him, he was dying. And they found, they said, no, he can't, but you can't have two like that. And the vets, I think, were as, as flabbergasted as we were. They were in shock. Rotten look. Um, yeah, and, but we, we said we would take him, we would have him put to sleep. Stuart, my husband, didn't want him to take the dead dog to Newmarket. So we had him home for a night. He was, sedate, he was on painkillers and sedation. We took him to our vet. And we went up to Newmarket to have him put to sleep. But when we got there again, receptionists were prepared and they were so nice and they had Mayank, the same vet, to come and put him to sleep. It's the little things. Um, so yes, I think they're absolutely fantastic. And I'll do anything for them, but they know I don't want to bring any dog to be treated. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's hope no more. Right. You've done so much good, not just you know with your dogs when they're alive, but donating their bodies as well. You're amazing, Sharon. You've done so much good. Well done. Thank you. But no, we we really think we don't like people. We didn't like it. It's a horrible experience, and we wanted good to come out of it. And the dogs actually, we've got a memorial fund for the other dogs, and we've got a Just Giving page, and I think we've raised over eight hundred pounds. Not by doing any stunts or whatever. And in fact, last year, my Mother's Day present from one of my sons and daughter-in-law was a £100 donation to the... They, they know what you want, don't they? Yeah. That's it. And he doesn't normally buy me Mother's Day presents. So I'm very lucky. Well, the best of luck with Brooke now. I hope there's no more illnesses for Brooke and just happiness and lots of... Thank you. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. She's incredible, isn't she? And still has boundless energy to carry on giving to others. A wonderful woman. Now we'll move on to other wonderful people, because we're talking next about a rescue charity. And the interviewee is Ben Wilkes, who's a trustee of the Border Collie Trust. So just what is the Border Collie Trust? We were a rescue organisation, registered charity, started in 1996. We have a rescue centre in uh, Rugeley, Staffordshire. Uh, we've always got 25 to 30 dogs and we rehome on average 450 to 500 collies a year. Wow, that's fantastic. Well done. <laughs> okay, so now border collies are a really popular dog and we see them doing amazing things. So yeah. what kind of issues will, will see a border collie in rescue needing your help? 
People always think that dogs in rescue have got, are there because they've got a problem, and there's no doubt that happens. What we do see, and there's no different to any other rescue organisation, is life. So there's bereavement, there's relationship breakdowns, there's people emigrating, there's people working longer hours, there's people working shorter hours and can't afford the dog. There's, there's all the cross-section of everything that happens in life that somebody adopts a dog either as a pup or as an adult dog and wants to give it a home for the rest of its life but unfortunately life intervenes and, and, and we see so much of that. So not every dog in rescue has a problem. The biggest thing that we see with collies is they are a little bit misunderstood. People seem to think understandably that collies need to be on the go all the time 24 hours a day and actually that doesn't happen and what tends to happen is because people give them shall we say inappropriate amount of exercise the dog becomes hyperactive can't settle so when they get in the house the dog is all keyed up ready to, to do more and the person doesn't want it and then you end up with a conflict situation We've come to realise over the years that collies, if they were human beings and, and a doctor diagnosed them, yeah. you would see lots of them being diagnosed with autism, with OCD, yeah. Asperger's. Yeah. You know, you, you look at so many collies, they're driven by routine, they're driven by consistency, and if you take them out of that comfort zone, they can't cope with it. And the difference between the sort of collies you'll see in the show ring and the sort of collies... In, in the other world yeah. are very different yeah. you know show collies and and other collies mentally are different and that's because they've been bred yeah. for those for characteristics yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah for different purposes so I guess the show ring are more for sort of the look and, and yeah, but, what yeah. goes on with that it happens but the collies that are in the real world if you like to make that distinction sort of are more bred to, to work maybe yes they, they've you know they're, they're bred to um, to show to the breed standard yeah. um, but also for their their adaptability and for their capability of coping with what they have to do yeah. in a show and during the long day at a show um, again I, I believe that what's happened with the, the Border Collie in general is that it's only become a popular household companion, and I don't like to use the word pet, uh, in the last sort of 40, 50 years. It hasn't yet evolved in a way that perhaps some other breeds have done to be able to adapt to our world and what's going on in that. Yeah. I mean, basically, you've got a dog that can could be sort of an Olympic athlete standard physically yeah. with a brilliant brain yeah. and you want it to spend you know 23 and a half hours maybe of the day on the sofa switched off don't yeah. you and, yeah. and that's not really what a collie wants really is it no no and if people expect that then they are going to be very disappointed yeah. it needs physical exercise it needs mental stimulation but it needs the right sort yes and, yeah. and it needs consistency and again unfortunately in many homes it's very difficult for people to do that you know if you've got a married couple they can almost be consistent when you've got a married couple with three young children bringing their friends in coming back at different times for and, some and then, then you, know, you go like, on, oh. yeah. and you go on holiday and grandma moves in to look at, yeah, yeah i know yeah. Yeah, we have a border collie <laughs> <laughs> but i have to say our grandma is very good with the border collie so <laughs> yeah so, so what should people do if they want to live happily with a border collie what should they do don't have any expectations yeah. uh, learn what works with your dog what will work with one collie might not work with another um, they don't they don't bounce back from bad experiences so they need 
they need responsible handling they need guidance yeah. what what they don't need is someone who's perhaps too firm yeah. you know they're, they're very fragile mentally yeah. and and if they get someone who it's not he's not abusing them he's not being cruel to them yeah. but you know sometimes with some colleagues you only have to look at them and yeah. it's enough to say oh what have I done wrong? Yeah. Even no, if I've done nothing wrong. I know exactly what you mean because I have I had a Labrador first. I have the Labrador still, and when I do a stay with him, it's the hand palm up towards him and quite a stern face, you know. And I mean this stay. Tried that with the border collie, and the border collie ran over to me. What have I done wrong? What are you cross with me for? What I was, you know. So with the border collie, I have to do a hand gesture and a big smile, you know, good at stay and be quite positive with him if you like he doesn't he knows what he's got to do yeah. i don't need the sternness with him kind of thing so they are really sensitive aren't they they're very sensitive very sensitive and and you know what what works with one dog as i said won't work with another yeah. uh, so the fact that you've had one before people will often ring us and say i've got a collie i need to rehome it i've had collies all my life and i can't cope with this one and i have one of those stock phrases that i think everybody has in life you may have had the collie before you haven't had this one no. <laughs> it's like people have met a person before. They're all the same. Well, no, they're not. They're not, exactly. That's right. We, I, I think one of the, the problems with dogs is that uh, for so long, and they still do it, and, and you see, they, they talk about a breed of dog, and they yeah. say, that breed of dog is good at this and this and this. Um, and I think it's, it's a bit misleading for the general public sometimes yeah. Yeah. because they expect then that dog to be like that, like yeah. that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost, in, in, in human terms, you wouldn't dream of saying, you know, being racist and saying, well, the French are this or, you know, uh, you know there may be tendencies. But in the dog world, we do go, oh, Labradors are brilliant with children. Well, you know, most of them might be. They might yeah. be a breed tendency, yeah. but you can't generalise like that. No. No. And that's what catches people out because mm. they're told that, oh, collies need lots of exercise collies need their labradors need this yeah. and, and yeah. you know they they need to just take a step back and say well yes okay i may expect some of those characteristics but yeah. there will be things that crop up that, that will be challenging yeah yeah but i guess with a border collie be prepared to have time to meet whatever that dog's needs are but it's probably going to involve some activity that works its brain yes. as well as its body isn't it yeah it's again it's People, people see the uh, the physical side of it. They see that the dogs working the sheep, and they think that's all they that's what they need. They need to run around. But if you watch a shepherd working his dog, it's all very calm. It's you know you don't see a good shepherd. You don't see jumping up and down, ranting and raving, and losing his temper. He's guiding the dog to do what the dog needs to do. Um, and they're not doing that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. You know, a, a lucky a lucky dog on a farm will be with the farmer all day mm. but he'll be in the back of the Land Rover yeah. he'll be walking around the fields he'll be doing what a dog does yeah. um, my own collie when I had him the one I've got at the moment he spent 18 months chasing vehicles in the garden and that's all he did yeah. so he was obsessed with chasing vehicles it took me 12 months to wean that out of him and now when we go for a walk well, we don't really go for a walk. We go for about three steps. We stop, he sniffs, he looks, he smells, he sees what's been happening in the big wide world today, what dogs have been here. Yeah. And it can take us half an hour to walk a very short distance. Yeah. But that's what he now wants to do yeah. rather than chase vehicles. Yeah. So mentally, he's being stimulated. Yeah, yeah. You know. And he doesn't need to be obsessed and he, he can yeah, think his own little doggy thoughts. Yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, where can people find out more about the Trust Online? We've got a website, obviously. 
bordercolleytrustgb.org.uk. Uh, very big on Facebook and social media, so you can always find us on there. Everything about us is on there. The dogs we have for rehoming. Uh, we have a, a, a very successful online collie shop, so all memorabilia from from pens to mugs to clothing, you know, anything like that, which all helps to to raise a lot of money that we need to to do what we do. I think there was sound advice there for when you're taking on any dog. Don't have expectations, just get to know that individual dog. We have a link to the Border Collie Trust, so if you're looking for a Border Collie, or for help with one, do check them out. We all want a happy dog, don't we? And Reiki for Dogs expert Rob Fellows and I took ten minutes out of the hustle and bustle of Crufts to talk about how to have just that. Reiki is all about trying to uh, ensure that your dog is as happy as possible. So uh, I've put together a, a guide which is called How to Keep Your Dog Happy. Uh, and anybody who wants to get a copy of that can, uh, can do so. It's free of charge. They can get hold of it on my website, which is robfellowsreiki.com. Yeah, smashing, okay. And we all want a happy dog. And as you say, I'm going to nick your catchphrase now, but a happy dog is a happy owner. Is that right? Have I got that right? Absolutely. Spot on. Yeah. Happy dog. Yes. Yeah. A happy dog equals a happy owner. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So how do we do that then? What do we need to do? Well, basically, the the uh, the guide actually is, uh, it's all in bullet points, so it's yeah. not a difficult thing to read. It's not like reading a book or anything. I've read so, it, so if I can read it, anybody can read it. Well, <laughs> no comments. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, but as you know, then it's yes. all in bullet points, yeah. and I've, I've divided it up into sort of various sections, which all fit around the Animal Welfare Act. So, we're looking at um, to, to ensure that the the animal, you know, the, the, the dog in this case, has um, has the best in terms of so, social uh, social activity, yeah. their diet, their shelter, and you know, and basically all things that can make uh, just make their their life happier and more, and more content. And if you know if they're content, then you've got a happier, healthier dog. And and um, you know, it's it, that'll rub off on the owner because yeah. life is life is more straightforward. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, if your dog isn't happy, obviously it's, it's difficult within the house to live with the dog. But you're not going to be able to train it. It's not going to be happy out on walks. You need your dog to be happy. It is important, isn't it? It's uh, it's extremely important. You know, if, if, if a dog is being is being, I wouldn't say mis, mis uh, mistreated because that's 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 I don't mean that. No. I, mean, I mean, if they haven't got the best of of everything in terms of their sort of creature comforts, yeah. and that doesn't necessarily mean that they've got to have a you know soft bed and all this kind of thing but just so that they've got all their their their, their basic needs are being met yeah. then absolutely then you, you've got a dog that is much more um, personable to be with is much more able to be trained and much and much better behaved generally you know and if you can imp and keep on the top of their of their well-being as well their health and their well-being which again you can achieve by ensuring that they're as happy as possible yeah. now what I've, um, I've obviously linked in is that the fact that with Reiki, which is a, a very simple uh, and easy hands-on healing therapy that absolutely anybody can easily and quickly learn to do. So it's not a, um, it's not people who've got some special gift that do it. Absolutely anybody can do it. And if you're able to give your own dog Reiki, then you can actually enhance all those other areas uh, in order to keep them happy. So really, it's a it's a kind of win-win situation, and it's one of the best ways that you can actually enhance the bond you've already got with your dog by having that closer relationship with them by giving them hands-on healing therapy. Yeah. I mean, I guess, as you say, anybody can do it. And with, you know, with, with the right sort of guidance, is that the way to put it? With the right... 
from yep. someone like you? Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, the, the, the way the way that Reiki works, the way you actually learn Reiki isn't like going to any other kind of um, school or college or any kind of other training course. Because actually, what you need to to be to have is to be attuned to Reiki. Yeah. That's a little process somebody like myself, who's a Reiki master teacher, uh, can do for you. It's a very simple little process that yeah. doesn't hurt. <laughs> and um, and once you've done that, that actually triggers your natural inbuilt ability to give Reiki. And literally anybody can do it. So what I actually uh, have produced is um, an, an, a, a home study course. I almost said online then. It's not online. Yeah. It's a home study course. I just use online to reach people with yeah. it. And, um, and basically what that involves is that um, I would then carry out that attunement process, a very simple little process, with that, with that person who is enrolled on the course, would agree a time, a set day and a set time when I would actually do that. They'd be in their home. I'd be in my home. I'd do what I need to do to actually trigger that that uh, that inbuilt natural ability to do Reiki. Um, I would send them a, a manual which shows them how to how to give Reiki to people, how to give Reiki to themselves, and of course how to give Reiki to their dogs. And it's just um, full of colour photographs, and you, uh, it guides them where to place your. You just gently place your hands on different parts of the body, hold that position for a minute or two, and then move on to another position. And so my manual shows you exactly how to do that. And I guess that is something that dogs would like, because apart from it's doing them good, it is one-to-one -one time, quality time with them, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely one-to-one, -one quality time. It's, it's generally a, a peaceful sort of scenario where you're, where you're, where you're actually doing it. So you, it's building that bond, as I've, as yeah. I've said. It's, it's like the ultimate in pampering to a certain extent, because you're actually giving them, you're, you're giving them your time, you're giving them your touch, and it's, it's building that kind of bond. And what tends to uh, often happen, the, the kind of, um, well, the, the, the benefits actually are that it can really help to lower uh, stress and anxiety. So if you, ha if you have a dog that is, is very stressy, and then Reiki is a great way to help calm them. You know, if they've got noise phobias, another great way to actually help calm their dog down. Um, and uh, we're, we're actually having this conversation at Crufts, which is a very noisy, very noisy atmosphere. And there's a lot of dogs out there who are, who are, uh, they, you know, if they're show dogs, then they are, they have that pressure almost on them to actually perform in the ring. And the, uh, I'm sure a lot of the handlers are very stressed about this, about the scenario. And uh, as you know, Julie, that that stress is picked up by their dogs yeah, yeah. so if the handler's stressy about it their dogs are going to be stressy about yeah. it so if they were able to give their dog rake it they could calm themselves down yes. and at the same time keep their dogs kind of you know calmer and you know and under under yeah. the, the best and best possible performance when they're in the ring Definitely. so it's got lots of benefits yeah. lots of benefits I mean, absolutely I mean you've used the word pampered and I think sometimes people try and pamper their dogs in the wrong way because they, you know, they don't want to be dressed up and they don't want to be carried and they don't necessarily want to be in a bag. You're, you're, that's my opinions. <laughs> Those are my opinions. Um, it's about meeting the needs of the dog as a dog, isn't it? Yeah, ab absolutely. And so, so really, Reiki isn't isn't when I say pampering. I meant I didn't mean in that kind of way. I didn't mean giving them really expensive cuts of meat or anything of that kind of it. What I mean is that you're actually giving them, you know, from from you know, it's going to love from your heart yeah. to your dog, yeah. uh, knowing that you're uh, enhancing their well-being and hopefully keeping them um, from, from picking up nasty kind of illnesses and diseases, trying to keep those things at bay um, and, and really 
it's that way of, of, of it's that kind of pampering that's a bonding bonding with your animal which is you know natural and it doesn't involve any cost either with once you you know you, you're giving them the reiki once you've been once you're able to do it you can do it forever anytime it's needed um, uh, I know we've had this conversation previously uh, with my late uh, my late Springer Monty who you've met previously um, but he was arthritic and he, and he and, uh, and at the lower low part of his back and uh, he used to come up to me about six times a day turn his turn his backside towards me so I could gently rest my hands on him to, to so in that way I was pampering him yeah. but not not in some of the ways that, yeah. that perhaps no, some, some of your listeners might be thinking yeah in, a, in pampering in a totally appropriate way isn't it basically? in a totally appropriate way that yeah. was just uh, there for me to try and help to improve his well-being yeah yeah just tell us again where people can find out more online about this yeah, they can uh, contact me uh, or find out much more detail about it and, and even enrol on the course on robfellowsreiki.com. Thanks, Rob. Enjoy the rest of Croft. And you too. Thanks very much. So there you go. The secrets to having a happy dog are within your reach. Just click on the link to Rob's website and download them. And by the way, if you've discovered something that keeps your dog happy, don't be shy. Do share it with us. You heard Stephen Jenkinson, the Kennel Club's access advisor, in our last show talking about professional dog walkers. But this time, you can hear Stephen and me discussing something I seem to spend quite a lot of my time discussing. Yes, we're talking poo. One of the messages we wanted to get across um, with our work with the National Farmers Union that we launched at Crufts this year was about the need to pick up after your dog when you're walking in the countryside because we know that from some of the research that the University of Central Lancashire did that the message for most dog owners is getting through that actually on pavements and in parks and formal landscapes you need to pick up after your dog. But you can kind of understand that when people go out in the countryside and they might see horse poo or sheep poo or cow poo actually what does it matter if I don't pick up after my dog? Um, but actually there is a, a, it's really important to pick up there because there's increasing evidence about, well in cattle it's a disease called neosporosis and it's only so, the, the, a dog is the, what they call a definitive host, you only find it in the, in the dog and actually that can cause abortion in cattle, quite high rates of abortion in carrot cattle then can be actually really quite hard to, to shift if you get it in the herd. Now we know from the research that farm dogs are the most likely culprit if you like for having this because they, when they're around the farm they can be picking up all sorts of lovely things Things yeah, as as, as, border collie, as a border collie owner, and, and yes, you can yeah, the smellier it is, the more oh, interesting yeah, it'll be, yeah. um, and that's great. But the farmers need to um, make sure that they're worming their dogs correctly to deal with that. But also, there is evidence that actually people walking their dogs through fields can cause a problem too. So it's important for them to pick up because not you know, whilst it affects the farmer's income, there's also just an animal welfare issue. Um, and similarly, in sheep, there's a disease called sarcosystosis, which can cause death and brain damage, and it can also affect the quality of the meat as well. So again, for those two reasons, it's important to pick up in the countryside. Now, there are practical issues like that. I mean, I don't have a problem in picking up my dog's poo and popping it in my pocket, particularly on a winter's day. I know that might gross some people out, but, you know, it does keep your hands warm, does keep your hands warm <laughs> if you've got some good quality bags. But also, there's an important thing that actually any public waste bin will do. If people are in, like, um, towns and parks, you're often looking for a metallic bin or one that says dog poo or whatever they may see. But actually, a lot of councils now are going on to a dual use system mm. so actually as long as you pop and even if there isn't a sign it's okay to pop your bags dog poo in in yeah. general litter bins not the recycling ones that gets yeah. some people upset but it is really important and so you're helping both the, to support you know british produce that's in the countryside uh, but also to to make sure that the cattle and the farmers livelihoods 
being kept safe and it'll also make sure that you're as, as welcome as you can be in the countryside yeah, yeah. now I mean I I do pick up but if I, I don't like a bag of dog poo in the car with me because no. the car will smell of dog poo so what I will do is because those bags are very strong and I will loop it on my rear windscreen wiper yep. so it's hanging there quite safely and then when I get home I'll put it in the bin except I do forget and I will drive around for quite a while with this bag of dog poo on the back but it does end up in a bin it doesn't harm anybody so. no. but there's a tip if you don't want to put it in the car with me. I, I do the same I have a tow ball on my car yeah. and you can hook it. And you know, nobody's ever run into the back of my car when I've had dog poo on there. But my, my best dog poo story, uh, hopefully this is not going out at breakfast time, um, is that I was working in Dublin uh, a few months ago and I'd been out on site because the, the, some people there were interested in, in doing better things for dogs. And I, I thought, hmm, I must have trodden in something because all day I was in this Land Rover. And then I got home, I got back to my hotel and opened my jacket up and there is a bag of dog poo from my dog Jess that I picked up three days ago. It had been on three aeroplanes. I feel so sorry for the people in the overhead locker but like you if you hang your tape it's like I picked and I'm proud and yes, we should yeah. we should push that forward but in all seriousness it is it is important yeah, yeah. Um, and that was one of the things that we were promoting with the National Farmers Union today because um, it's really interesting because a lot of them are just very interested in animal welfare too and we know from the research that it's not dog owners going out there deliberately causing problems it, you know, it would seem to make sense that if you see poo of another animal why is mine different but yeah. just the way that um, ecology and sort of yeah. all those sort of scientific things work you know, it is a problem with dogs and it's important for everybody's sake to, to pick up also there's some really good bins I know if you're walking around Crofts there's, there's plastic bags they do some uh, I think the Corder Bag Company um, there's a really nice um, like Harry's Tweed bag that's got yeah. Uh, yeah. compartments that keep the smell out as well so you can do it in a very stylish way yeah, um, yeah. you so, don't have to walk around with a plastic bag no. that's obviously <laughs> there's a whole science to poo but we know in some areas people are really proud to be seen carrying the bags yeah. because they know that people won't be looking at them and thinking I bet you didn't pick up because yeah. you're yeah. showing that they did yeah there, there is that aspect I always think you know once he's pooed and I've picked it up and you go look look I'm proving I'm, I've got my bag I've proved that I'm picking it up so there is that and no um, and, and I will. I have pulled the car over and sort of just wound the window down. When if I see someone picking the poo yeah. up, and I go, "Well done," because you get. You know, people will tell you off quickly enough, and I've told people off yeah. for not picking up. And in, in, in a city centre, I walked over and went, "Would you like a bag?" and got a mouthful. But you know, yeah. made the point. So I have pulled over and kind of gone, "Well done." And uh, it, it is important to do that because if we don't pick up the poo, if we don't clean up after our dogs there will be fewer and fewer places that we can take our dogs, won't oh, there? Absolutely, and this is one of the problems, that if somebody leaves like a fast food wrapper on the street or in the countryside nobody seems to say, oh that's a young person or an old person or whatever, it's just somebody inconsiderate, but if it's, it's poo that's left there, ah, it's an inconsiderate dog owner, and we all get branded, you know, tarred with the same brush, which is really unfair, but you know as we know, it happens, and we need to avoid that. And I know, like you, I um, I saw somebody when I was working down in Hampshire the other week, and I, it was quite funny because I spoke to the lady. It was a nice mowed area just next to a seat and a bus stop, uh, and I couldn't believe that she walked away. So I offered her a bag and just chatted, and I got all this, oh, you dog haters. And I said, oh, well, I, I said, oh, no, how, how many dogs have you got? I said, oh, three or four. Oh, well, I bet you don't do anything with dogs. And they said, well, actually, I work for the kennel club, and I do this, this, this. And I said, really, I said, you make my heart job a lot harder yes, and if yeah. you could do something different that would be, really help everybody and it quite diffused her and I felt really sorry for her actually yeah. but then she had this preconceived idea but it, but it, it doesn't help and actually it's incumbent on us all to try yeah. and avoid ever more restrictions because that's what I'm fighting for and there's some councils already who tend to be a bit more anti-dog than some and let's not give them the ammunition no, no. to actually 
cause more restrictions on something that we know does brilliant stuff for people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing is, pick it up, bag it, and I obviously put it in a bin or take it home, as we've discussed. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've been interviewed in the past about sort of people have either hung it in a tree yep. or thrown it in the sea. And you just think, what's the matter? You've done the hardest, but you've picked it up, you've bagged it. Yeah. Just put it in a bin or take it with you. Can you understand that at all? Yeah. I mean, some of the research that I mentioned, the um University of Central Lancashire research that have been done and, and again it looked at this because it does seem like you've done the hard bit, what's the problem? And we know for some people that it seems to be that they're protesting that they, they think there should be a bin but actually you know people are saying actually should, if you've got a dog you should be prepared to pick it up and carry it. And what we know in some cases is that people will pick up and then they don't want to carry it on the circular walk and they leave it but actually sometimes people forget or you don't always know and it just looks unsightly and it's not very welcoming so actually what we encourage people to do is to pick it up um, but yeah you do see some horrible situations particularly in autumn and winter where people have hung it on the trees and the leaves have disappeared and, and the trouble is it's just another big sign that says a really inconsiderate dog walker has been yeah. here and I feel awkward because if I'm walking there with my dog you kind of feel like saying you know yeah. it really wasn't me yeah no absolutely it does, it does give us all a bad name absolutely. so pick up the poo absolutely and any waste bin will do yep brilliant well thank you very much is there anywhere that people can find out online about this particular campaign about picking up the poo is there anywhere um, if they just go to the kennel club website or just go if they search for kennel club and national farmers union that will bring up all the coverage from today or else just get in touch with the kennel club's uh, kennel club um, dog owners group which is kcdog at thekennelclub.org.uk and we can send you additional information what's magic thank you for talking poo with me Stephen. no thank you for your interest as ever <laughs> thank you Stephen's always a delight to talk to and has such sensible advice. What a great way to round off our Crufts coverage. In our last show, we had an interview about Woof, the unique board game that the family dog can join in. So if you haven't already entered our Woof giveaway, don't forget to go to our Facebook, Twitter or Tumblr page to find out how you can be in with a chance. In our next show, we have an uplifting interview about the canine project and a charming interview with Dr. Elizabeth Freights about her Harvard Medical School report, Get Healthy, Get a Dog. So, until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S. Radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident DogCastRadio. That's all one word, DogCastRadio. By email, you can contact me on Julie at DogCastRadio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What do you call a large dog that meditates? A werewolf.